LFG people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi and this is episode 167 and this is an insight show. We want to take another deep dive this time into remittances. Remittances, the act of individuals sending money to support their families and communities back home, make up a significant component of GDP for many countries. So how can crypto help? To dig into this, I'm joined today by Chike Ukebu, Head of Crypto Strategy, Emerging Markets at Visa. Welcome to the show, Chike. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you joining. We're also joined by Santiago Alvarado, Senior Vice President of Product at Bitsu. Welcome to the show. What's up with you today, Santiago? Doing very well. Thanks, Mauricio. Happy to be here. Good to have you. And last but not least, a warm welcome back to Rian Lewis, author of The Cryptocurrency Revolution. How are you doing today, Rian? I'm all good, thanks. Really happy to be back on the show. Good, good to have you back. So with that, let's dive right in. So the first part, we're going to look a little bit on the current state of crypto and remittances, and obviously explore the topic in a little bit of depth. So right now, global remittances uh, total 700 billion, in 2020, 540 billion of which is noted to have been sent to low and middle income countries, according to the World Bank. El Salvador alone was nearing 6 billion of all of that. Cryptocurrencies, on the other hand, are estimated to currently make up less than 1% of global cross-border remittances. So if that's the case, I mean, we've had crypto for almost, you know, over 10 years now. So I'm going to start with you, Rian. Why is this just 1%? What crypto needs to do to actually improve on that mark, knowing the benefits that crypto bring to the table? Well, I find it really surprising that, <laughs> I find it really surprising that um, it is still only 1%, because when I first became involved in crypto back in 2014, there were companies like Bitpaysa, who um, were setting up on the basis that at that point, Bitcoin, because you have to remember that 2014 was pre-stable coins, it was before people had really started talking in depth about central bank digital currencies. So Bitcoin was really the only play as far as blockchain-based um, digital currencies were concerned. And they were um, setting up in East Africa, obviously seeing this as an absolutely brilliant target market because of the very digitally native population there who were used to using um, mobile payments before people in Britain and people in um, Western Europe were used to using digital payments because of solutions like M-Pesa. And the narrative then was that Bitcoin would actually solve a lot of remittance problems um, because obviously almost in instantaneous payments, low fees and so on. But um, issues like fluctuating value of Bitcoin, the regulatory situation and so on meant that this and differences, huge differences between countries, even within one continent, um, let alone when you start talking about other remittance heavy countries like the Philippines or Indonesia or whatever, meant that Bitcoin based solutions didn't take off in this way. And although um, there's been a huge 
huge adoption in terms of cryptos generally. Certainly in Africa, people aren't using them for remittances on the scale that maybe I would have expected by now. Now, I know stablecoins are starting to change this, and we'll, um, we'll talk later on about the now situation. But based on the past, I'm personally surprised that the percentage of um, remittances that involve crypto is still so low. And perhaps um, these experts in the field can help shed light on why that might be. Brian, you mentioned stablecoins, and we're seeing an, a, an increase in adoption of stablecoins, even in emerging markets, and Bito being present in Latin America and doing uh, work on that. Santiago, can you share a little bit about your perspective and what you're seeing in, in the role of stablecoins in that remittance space? Yeah, definitely. So, so we're seeing quite a, uh, um, a few things. Definitely one of the most important, um, let's say, jobs to be done of our users in, across countries in Latin America is hedging against inflation. If you look at places like Argentina with 70% inflation rates, no one really wants to hold on to Argentinian pesos, right? And that's why we see such a, such a large penetration of crypto adoption in countries like, like Argentina. Let's not even talk about Venezuela, but I guess my point is, when a country, the worse that they're managing their monetary policy, the higher the adoption rate of crypto that we see in that country. And I think stablecoins specifically ha has been a, a big boost in that, in that sense. And I guess linking this to, to remittances and even more broadly cross-border payments, because we should include not just um, the peer-to-peer -peer remittance use case, but also um, like international commerce, let's say uh, SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises engaging in exporting their services, or even freelancers, we do see this decoupling of, of, have, of having to have the end-to-end -end flow completed versus actually just getting paid in stablecoins and saving in stablecoins and then just converting to your local currency whenever you actually need to pay for goods and services or um, payroll, let's say. Yeah, and, and especially the, the whole aspect of volatility, when we think about how these local currencies are volatile, the population is kind of used to the volatility. And then when, when it comes to crypto assets, it kind of doesn't really matter for them that they're more volatile because the upside and the purchase, the retention of purchasing power seems to be more of in, in, in the realm of what they are used to and even better if you compare with the local currencies. I think that's one angle to pursue. So let me ask you this, uh, Chike, in, in terms of what you are seeing in emerging markets, what's, what, what is it that kind of is more curious that you've seen in the behavior of these markets when it comes to uh, payments in general and obviously remittances? Uh, just, you know, before I jump right into that, just to add into some of Rian's uh, comments, right, so in terms of some of the pain points when we talk about um, the adoption of crypto for remittances, right? You have to understand that there are two parties when it comes to remittances, right? Um, if one party is more uh, crypto adept and the other is not, that becomes an, uh, but a literacy challenge there, right? Um, now to your point, however, mobile money is huge on the continent huge, right? So uh, to an extent, Africa is digital first when it comes to payments. However, if the counterparts here 
are not that, you know, those who are sending the money, one, don't understand how they can leverage crypto for remittances, then it makes it harder for the person who is receiving to even educate them on why crypto um, could be an avenue to send money. Um, that's one. Two, if you also look at the rate of adoption, yes, emerging markets have much higher crypto adoption than Western markets for several reasons, right? In the West, most people leverage or rather consider crypto more of an, um, an investment asset, right? While in some of these other countries, they leverage it for diverse purposes, you know, from trade to hedging against evaluation, all of the above, right? So when we, when we look at some of those pain points as to why adoption of crypto for remittances may not be happening, one, you mentioned a key one, which is regulation. Um, some of these countries have very anti-crypto regulations. Uh, two, there has to be a crypto literacy part and that educates people on the importance of, say, you know, stable coins or crypto in facilitating remittances. Um, so I think some of those issues may be some of the reasons why. And I think as we address some, as we start to address those, you know, from crypto exchanges now adopting uh, remittances as, as one area to focus on, um, to people understanding that remittances or using crypto may be easier, like some of the um, <clears throat> some of the data that I have seen um, consider uh, crypto as being um, a little easier, right? It's easier for someone to receive money via their crypto wallet than trying to find uh, an institutional location uh, for safety reasons, timing reasons, cost reasons for using crypto for remittances. So. I think some of these will start to change our conversations with some of these exchanges or fintechs focused on using crypto as remittances are doing their best to address some of these issues. And, you know, it's, it's exciting what's, uh, what's happening in these spaces. And I think the combination, right, uh, we're probably going to see whoever finds the sweet spot between regulatory compliance, cost of usage, and uh, the overall onboarding or educational aspect of things will probably strike like right in the middle and we'll kind of unlock all of that. Are there any other components, Rian, in your opinion, that for a broader usage of crypto as an infrastructure for remittances, we should be aiming at? Well, I think it's one of the interesting things that I've been following a lot is the growth of central bank digital currencies, as I mentioned before. So when you talk about targeting things, I think to a certain extent, one's hands are bound by what governments want to do. And I saw, for example, that six Central African countries have got together to launch a collective digital currency. And if you see initiatives like that, it does become harder, I think, for crypto to compete as a payment rail, because then you are not just competing with, say, Western Union, but you're competing with governments who can make their own rules about what people can and can't do for their own purposes. Like, for example, recently, we've seen the Nigerian government bring in legislation that um, around 
around tightening up how many American dollars you can buy with Naira. So obviously that's because there's um, been a big flow into USD. And if crypto then becomes an equivalent sized market, you are then going to see governments imposing capital controls or if there's a situation where they have their own digital currency that they want to promote as a payment rail or even um, in terms of um, what China have done with their own state currency, obviously. Governments can put a lot of resources behind their own payment rails that maybe we don't see quite the same joined up approach with crypto. So until now, we're seeing this kind of shakeout of central banks versus crypto versus legacy um, payments. And there, there's bound to be some kind of integration at some point, which I know we'll talk about probably in the second half. But uh, right now, it's more or less direct competition. So it's very difficult, I feel, for individual projects or individual companies to target these kind of macro forces that surround them at the moment. How effective do you think, so a place like Nigeria, for instance, with um, such a, a monetary policy where people are being discouraged from using the local currency to buy USD, do you think that creates an opportunity for peer-to-peer -peer platforms, for instance, in terms of remittances, wherein you know, a sender from the US who is either using leveraging stable coins it becomes easier for them to do that. It, it becomes more of a selling point to the receiver to say, hey, here is an alternative way for you to get USD that does not literally depend on this monetary policy by the government. Those are some of the questions we've been asking, and I, I would definitely love to get your insight on what you think and how if at all, that policy would affect, you know, um, crypto as a, a, as a channel for remittances, or if it would actually bolster the use or adoption of crypto for that in order to counter this this other policy here. Um, I'm not a regional specialist, but I'm just, um, I'm. I'm obsessed with economic history. So I can point to past examples of where capital controls actually they heighten people's worry about what's going to happen. They always fail because they make people more concerned about what's happening to the currency and more determined to find other ways around it. So I think you're quite right that as long as a government didn't explicitly outlaw, say, people using Naira to buy dye or something like that. So people buying USD stable coins rather than dollars themselves. However, I would expect if that got to be a sizable proportion of the market that the government might move to act. But what you might see, for example, is um, 
what a government wouldn't necessarily outlaw is a stable coin tied to their own currency. And in that way, um, you could imagine fast, cheap payments being made, even if people don't then have the option to denominate in another currency. So it's a really interesting question. And I think we're at such a fascinating point now that in future we'll look back on this period as a really critical piece of economic history, figuring out it's like an experiment being run in real time. That, that there are so many questions that I have based on that, but I don't want to. I don't want to hug up the microphone and. and uh, no, I think I would love to hear your questions. I mean, you're you're uh, you're looking into emerging markets in terms of the crypto strategy. I think there will be a lot of angle there that we could explore. Absolutely, feel free to shoot. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't mind. So some of the um, conversations that seem to be brewing on the ground, especially in terms of the e-Naira and why there necessarily hasn't been that much of adoption of it, is people thinking, well, you know, the e-Naira is not different from the Naira, the current Naira, right? And um, some sources would say the Naira itself has been devalued at least eight or nine times in the last three to four years. So for many Nigerians looking to preserve wealth, right, they probably are thinking, you know, storage or wealth building in terms of dollars or other foreign stronger currencies are much better, right? So why would they want to leverage a stable coin tied to the Naira when they could use a stable coin tied to the Euro or the US dollar uh, to preserve wealth? Well, I'm sure they'd want to do that. The question is whether governments would move to restrict that in the same way as buying actual dollars. But actually, Santiago's probably got a view on this because you were referencing Argentina, which in terms of inflation is really similar. So perhaps we might get some answers out of Santiago about this. Yeah, no, this is, this is a fascinating point. So Bitso is the only exchange in Latin America that's end-to-end regulated. And given that there's no proper crypto regulation in any country in Latin America, the way that we structured our, our operation is that all of our crypto operation is regulated in Europe under the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission. And then at each of the jurisdictions where we operate, we have the equivalent of an e-money license uh, that handles all of our fiat operations in, in country, right? Brazilian reais, Argentinian peso, Mexican peso, Colombian peso, so forth. Um, now, the, the, the good thing about this structure is that because we're regulated locally for the fiat operation, we can actually be direct participants of the domestic banking system. And this is particularly valuable when we're talking about cross-border payments because we are, or one of the most important functions that we do as a company is to act as the bridge between the traditional financial system and the crypto realm all completely covered by, by regulation. So if any authority comes to us and says, this is a, a risky transaction, we can actually have like the full, the full traceability of that transaction and give the authority whatever they need to know. We also have to have like proper AML, KYC, risk management, business continuity, and this is why we can form good relationships with 
uh, our banking partners in all of the countries where we, where we operate, as well as with regulators. And we think that there's two ways in which this technology can be, or adoption for this technology can be driven. And you can either be like a cowboy and try to circumvent regulation or directly engage with regulators and try to build constructive dialogues with them and really point out the benefits that their population will get from leveraging this technology, right? Because I, th I do think that regulation is coming. There's no question about that. The question is whether it will be good regulation that promotes innovation or whether they'll be, uh, or take a more, I guess, destructive, uh, non-productive approach to, approach to it. So that, that's, the, that's one of the things that we are really trying to, to do, which is engage with regulators, try to have like in-depth conversations so they understand the technology, how we can like, uh, get most of the benefits in a, in a way that's safe and in line with their goals. But this is still a, an open question for the industry and one that we monitor quite closely. Awesome. So I think we'll wrap up this section of where we are and we'll give a little bit of time for our sponsors and we'll reel in back on that point specifically, but looking forward. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. So we're back and uh, I wanted to continue to talk about a little bit about regulation and uh, I'll, pick it up, I'll pick on you, Santiago, as you were wrapping up the previous section. Uh, but now looking forward, right? You have this kind of finger on the pulse of the regulatory movements around the globe. And we here at 11FS have been in touch with various regulators across multiple jurisdictions and even with different responsibilities uh, among themselves. And there is a kind of a vibe that's just trying to maybe overly prevent exposure from retail in crypto spaces. But we know that if crypto is uh, fully adopted, there is one uh, UN SDG, the, the uh, Sustainability Development Goal 10.3, which is the goal of achieving remittance costs lower than 3%, that we could push well before the headline of 2030. And that is a, that is a big angle. So what if the regulators started looking at crypto and blockchain in general as an opportunity rather than just a risk? What's, what's the take? How, how can we help encourage that uh, debate in that direction? What do you think? Well, I'll start with a, with a real example, a real world example. So. The U.S. to Mexico is um, the largest, well, there's some debate, it might be the second largest, co remittance corridor in the world. 
And we are about to process 4.5% uh, of that whole volume from the U.S. to Mexico. And the government or one of the goals of the government is to really help uh, their population have access to low-cost, real-time remittance flows into uh, the Mexican market, right? It's like between 2 to 4% of, of the country's GDP, and it's like a big social um, um, issue that the, the government wants to solve. Interestingly, I believe that the government looks at us like one of the best options to actually achieve that. And they, I, I, I think they think of us as an ally in actually unlocking all of this benefit to their local population. So the conversations that we have with the Mexican government are quite productive. And I think that that same example could be replicated um, across the region and, and globally, ultimately. Yeah, there's an important angle that you bring, which is in the era of blockchain, we're talking about systems that run 24-7, that are natively digital and global, and that will require more cooperation across not only, I think, the businesses, but also across jurisdictions and regulators, even in different disciplines. Like if you're a monetary regulator, you might want to be cooperating with a securities regulator from other jurisdictions to make things more feasible. Do you know, and Chiki, maybe that's, uh, that's one for you, do you know of any forums other than the BIS, which is clearly working towards uh, CBDCs uh, at this point, that are working in these other different angles? Because there is a clear angle on social and governance that blockchain could help uh, unlock even for the most remote um, jurisdictions in the world. That's a great question. Um, none currently comes to mind. I do know, especially on the continent, it's probably uh, one, two. I can think of one right now, the African DeFi, I think, Institute or Association. They're very new, out of Kenya. There may be another one in Ghana that's so focused on policy. I don't remember their name right now, but I think we need a lot more of institutions or organizations, you know, um, that collectively take on that mandate of, hey, how can we help to one, address some of your concerns, right, but to also uh, educate on the benefits of, you know, this technology, on ways to mitigate some of the risks you know, associated with it that you're concerned about. Um, and, you know, just like um, Santiago uh, referred to um, and how it could help solve, you know, some of your main priorities, especially in terms of financial inclusion, right? Um, so a place like Sub-Saharan Africa, I think, probably still has the highest in terms of cost of remittance at 8.2% uh, per $200, right? And I'm sure, you know, many of the governments are looking for ways to, you know, drop, you know, some of those cost um, values for their people, right? How will organizations talk about the benefits, if possible, of crypto in helping to do that? but also um, address some of the concerns. Because I think for many of these regulators, sometimes it's, yes, we see some of these benefits, but in the grand scheme of things, 
um, they may not outweigh some of the concerns that we have, right? So it would have to be a collaborative effort between all of the people who are interested in the space, you know, innovators, you know, corporations, all of the above to come together to say, and regulators to come together to figure out how to tackle some of these concerns and problems. Uh, but I, I can't think of, you know, um, any ones right now. Of course, maybe, maybe WEF and some of the more global organizations. But in terms of regionally, that currently skips my skips Yeah, my right I, you know, it, it's a hard time to be a regulator, to be honest. No, not, a, not that I think there was an easy time to be a regulator, but before cryptocurrencies existed, they probably would regulate regulate around 170, maybe 190 currencies globally. And now there's, you know, if you go to any listing website, it's 20,000 currencies. Oh my God. I think, do we, I mean, one question is, do we need that many? Are they actually resolving different problems in different ways that we never thought about? I think that's one big question. But I think the other question is, how many do we actually need to resolve real world problems? And maybe if the angle is not forcing the use of a specific technology, but actually resolving, you know, we, we, we talk about this all the time here at Love and FS with jobs to be done, right? Why am I actually solving? Um, and, and, and why are we solving this with this specific technology if this is really necessary? But even if it's not just crypto, um, crypto might be one of the ways. So we have other things that, you know, can move money around the world, but crypto seems to be kind of the easier, kind of more natural um, angle to this. In your research, Rianne, what are, you know, obviously the, the, the crypto angle to this, but are there any other specific technologies that you see that would be involved in the process of making this like cross-border, cheaper, almost instantaneous money movement part of the day-to-day -day lives of everyone? That's such an interesting question and um, it sort of ties into the whole regulation angle really because one of the things that regulators um, get concerned about which is ironic, really, because as I'm sure everyone here knows about things like the Chainalysis report that actually showed a reducing proportion of cryptocurrency transactions that are illegitimate compared with transactions through normal financial rails, something like 1% one, 1 to 3% as compared with 3 to 5%. So some of it is around um, just educating regulators of ways that they can actually interface with these systems in order to get transparent information and hit compliance targets. But a big chunk of this, and this is something that um, Jack Dorsey's new or newish initiative, um, TBD, is working on, is around decentralised identity. And I think some of these solutions are really interesting. And um, he's obviously explicitly set up TBD and... Um, block to look at things like this for the purposes of um, low, you know, low fee payment networks and banking the unbanked and so on and all the things that we talk about. And he certainly sees decentralized identity as a big part of this because one of the things I think that people have struggled with in emerging markets is know your customer legislation, um, which is 
different border to border. And I really take um, Santiago's point that for every transaction, there are two parties and you're not just always looking at the same origin point with different endpoints. You're looking at a different origin point and a different endpoint. So, for example, going back to using Africa as an example, um, so many migrant workers are migrant workers in other African countries, not necessarily outside the continent. So you're not necessarily looking at remittance payment solutions between the US and an African country or Britain and an African country, you're looking at inter-Africa transactions. And if different countries have different regulation around know your customer, then you're going to just end up with problems with on-off ramps and the payment doesn't go fully end-to-end. So I think technology companies who are working on things like identity solutions that are going to be acceptable to the largest number of regulators in the largest number of countries, they're a really critical part of the jigsaw. I love it. And I love that we're starting to see a pattern that decentralized infrastructure can serve multiple use cases because it's all about the data. It's all about the censorship resistance and not necessarily about the speculation on the uh, price of these digital assets that we you know, make the headlines. There's so much more uh, happening and so many more interesting things that we see on a day-to-day basis. If we are willing to look past the speculation, that is uh, that is really interesting angle. Santiago, in, in, in that same sense, I mean, uh, you're, you're uh, structured as a global company with specific license in the countries where you operate. When we kind of provoke these uh, regulators to see through this global infrastructure that operates digitally 24-7, that is permissionless, what is, is, is the, uh, the risk of losing sovereignty over their monetary policies is this the is this the biggest scare other than obviously the the AML um, discussion in KYC but is this something that is uh, being discussed by them explicitly as you, as you interact with these regulators yeah i i, I think it varies uh, and uh, but it's certainly one of the core issues right and i think the larger question is let's say that once you can actually pay for local goods and services in whichever currency you want, because there's really not, not an infrastructure blocker to it anymore, right? So you go to your local mom and pop shop and you pay with USDC, let's say, right? The, the cross-border payments actually happen, right? At least, I mean, it's fair to say that the fee-based cross-border payment or remittance is not happening. There, there certainly is a transfer of value between citizens of different countries, but there's no, no real like FX going on. Right, just transfer of value, and the question then is like, you actually start fiat currencies start competing directly with cryptocurrencies, right? And it becomes the choice of the citizen to decide like what currency is more valuable to them, and in what they want to get paid, in what they want to store, in what they want to, I guess, build their financial life around it. So this is a very fundamental structural question uh, for us as a society, and I think uh, if regulators are not thinking about this. They, they should. Let me ask you a question. Um, so Bitso uh, does remittances via crypto, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. 
Um, how long have you guys done this for? Um, we started almost two years ago. In, in terms of adoption of your users um, leveraging crypto for remittances, right? How, how has that growth been? Right? Is that something that you go to um, regulators to say, hey, you know, in this last two years, this has been the month-on-month -month growth? on our platform and here's why our people are leveraging this and why you should um, be able to consider this if, if they are not considering it. Is that, have you seen an increase in adoption that has been able to you know, um, foster better argument for regulators? Yeah, so I should start by maybe explaining how our product offering works. So I'd say that we have two products. We have a B2B API-based product. So let's say a money transmitter or a remittance provider will connect to those APIs and automate payments between country A and country B. So that's one side of the, of the remittance or cross-border payments business. And then the other side is our retail side of the business, which are users that use our platform, I would say, as a, as a global bank account, really, right? And they can use multiple ways to transact with their money, uh, both fiat rails and crypto rails. When I say that we are processing 4.5% um, of, of remittances from the US to Mexico, I'm talking exclusively about the API-based business. Now, the reason why I say why like, that business is growing so much, 400% um, year over year, we expect to end 2023 with 10% of all the remittance flows from the US to Mexico, is because until we solve the digitization, part of like the, 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 I guess, both of the ends, right? So both the sender and the receiver, starting from a, from a digital standpoint, uh, it's gonna be very hard for us to really grow our, I guess, direct-to-consumer retail base, right? However, uh, going beyond the, the remittance use case and into international commerce, which is end-to-end -end digitized, that's also going uh, at, at a great rate. And, um, and the most interesting part to me about this business is that uh, it continues to grow regardless of what happens with, with crypto prices, right? Because that's, that's, that's not the fundamental of the use case. Um, it's completely separated from the, from the speculative investment use case. Uh, we, ju we just leverage crypto, I guess, as a disintermediation tool for all of the parties that usually intervene in, in the cross-border payment flow. I may have a silly follow-on to that, if, if I'm allowed to ask that. So I know right now Africa leads in terms of mobile money, right? And that a lot of people think, a lot of you know, researchers think that that would actually facilitate the adoption of crypto on the continent. Um, I'm not so sure the, the depth of um, mobile money adoption in Latin America. Um, is that something you think that could help address this digitization issue that you mentioned about, or do you think it's something entirely different? Could there be a, an entirely different solution that could facilitate that? This, this is a great question, right? Um, I, I don't know what, what the like, digitization rates are uh, for Africa, but talking specifically about 
like banking penetration services in Latin America, we're talking about 50% of, of, of adults, right? So it's still quite low. And that's like having access to the most basic, basic type of product, right? Basically just a checking account. So yes, I think that education, making sure that um, we can properly communicate the benefits of moving away from cash, I think that's one of the biggest blockers for having like full adoption of crypto-powered cross-border payments. Wow, nice. So before we wrap up, I think I have like this uh, fire round for you guys, each of you. And I'm going to start with Rianne. What would you like to see happen in the near future, say 6, 12, 24 months? I'd like to see um, people starting to talk about not either or solutions when it comes to these different forms of digital money, but I would like to see regulators and um, governments and private companies and peer-to-peer -peer protocols and everyone involved in those all working together to provide joined up solutions so that um, you have integration points between these different payment rails that make things transparent and easy to use for digital native consumers. Because I think the situation that we're in now is that a lot of the regulators in a lot of different countries, I think they're doing a great job and I think they're opening their minds to things. But the problem is that they all come from a legacy system generally. And um, when you're talking to populations, as we see in these emerging markets, that are young populations that have grown up with mobile money, that have grown up with always their internet, they look at money and payments in an entirely different way from the way that governments and regulators and people who are in senior banking positions do. And I'd like to see a little bit more upward, um, you know, the influence going from bottom to top, as it were, rather than from top down, and people actually talking to each other and figuring out payment systems that actually work for people and are cheap and easy to use and accessible, censorship resistant and fraud resistant. Love it. Chiki, same thing to you. What do you like to see happening in this uh, time frame? I, I think Rian has done a great job of, you know, literally bunching all of that into her response, right? So the collaboration between the different stakeholders that can help foster financial inclusion, uh, I think is extremely important, right? Um, without minimizing the role of any of these stakeholders from innovators, right? So <clears throat> when we look at, you know, other channels like open banking and sustainable banking or buy now, pay later, um, or m mobile money, as we talked about, crypto, right? How are all of these um, coming together to help us solve, you know, one of the world's greatest problems in terms of banking the unbanked? And not just banking the unbanked, but ensuring that, you know, that financial health is also a main priority, right? Um, so that's, that's what I would love to see, you know, making sure that every stakeholder who can help is doing what needs to happen uh, to empower communities across the world. Thank you. Same to you, Santiago. It's a great question. So uh, Bitso's mission is to make crypto useful. Um, and our core thesis is that we can build much better financial services than the 
than what a traditional financial system can because we're building them on top of blockchain, crypto, DeFi, and so forth, right? Which is a much more efficient base or foundation on top of which to build financial services more broadly. FX and settlement, which are key components for remittances, I think are ripe for disruption and that we can deliver a, a product that's 10x better for um, migrants uh, by leveraging this technology. And I hope that we we can work together across the different stakeholders in the, in the, in the industry, in the regions, to, to really make this happen in a safe way um, that can deliver like, the results that I think we know we can, or the benefits that I think we know we can to the general population. That's great, that's great. I'll answer that myself. In the next 12 to 24 months, I would love to see regulators use the blockchain to their benefit. I would love to see that. And uh, yeah. That, that, would be, that would be great to see. So awesome. I really appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, we'll wrap up for now. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. So where can people find more about you and what you're doing, the work that you're doing with your companies? Uh, go with you, Rianne. Generally on Twitter, where I am at Rianne underscore is. Thank you. Chike. Practically on most social media platforms as Chike Okebu, first and last name. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of the above. Great. Santiago. So um, in general, I'd say go to Bitso.com. You can look at careers, what we do, a lot of information um, about Bitso. In social media, just look me up as, um, at Santiago ALVG. Great. And as for me, you can find me in Twitter at 0 Mauricio, obviously 11FS.com, and in LinkedIn as Mauricio Magaldi. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have lots in the works and we're so excited to be talking about crypto and blockchain with you again. If you can't wait until the next episode, take a look at the many, many previous episodes and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. And as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.